Welcome to Climate Pulse, where each episode we discuss how climate disruption is impacting our own health and well-being. Today's guests are Bill Pan, the Elizabeth Brooks Reed and Whitelaw Reed Associate Professor of Population Studies at the Nicholas School of the Environment, as well as Associate Professor of Global Environmental Health at the Duke Global Health Institute, and Dr. Chris Woods, Executive Director of the Hubert Jurgen Center for Global Health and Professor in the Departments of Medicine and Pathology at Duke University. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. So the spread of infectious diseases has been in the news a lot since the COVID-19 outbreak that started in 2019. With this came an increasing awareness of not only how viruses are transmitted, surface versus airborne, et cetera, but how they emerged in the first place. One of the things I learned, for instance, is how many infectious diseases emerge from animals. Chris, can you please tell us about the latest thoughts about the emergence of the COVID-19 and also why bats? <laughs> great topic. Um, when we think about COVID-19, it's largely a, a great example of an emerging infection. Uh, we've been focused on the emergence of new infections pretty much for the last three decades, uniquely from you know, our long history of uh, what are now vaccine-preventable diseases. And what we learned is many of these infections, whether they're bacterial or viral or parasitic, they've uh, at least have a close relative or have directly emerged from, uh, from an our interaction with animals. And uh, so it's estimated that of all infectious diseases, about 60% are uh, what we call zoonotic in origin. That is, they came from some uh, animal precursor or directly from animals. Uh, and about 75% of what we define as emerging infections, those uh, diseases that have a potential to jump into humans mm. or have a, um, uh, have a potential because of the changes in the, uh, in the local ecology, have an opportunity to increase in, 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 in their frequency. Um, those, uh, again, are about 75% are, are zoonotic infections. So as a, um, the source of those infections being animals, um, a lot of focus has been on where humans and animals have an interaction interface. And that's really going to be, I think, a lot of what we talk about today because how climate uh, changes and how uh, what we call anthropogenic land use change, how humans interact with mm -hmm. our local ecology is really uh, changing in the last few decades. And it brings humans and animals closer together and in different ways. And um, that gives the opportunity for what we call spillover events. So your initial question was about COVID and its spillover mm. event. It's believed uh, and understood that uh, a bat is the source of the, uh, the virus that um, the coronavirus that uh, subsequently we named SARS-CoV-2, mm -hmm. which is closely related to a similar event that happened around 2000, in the early 2000s, which was the original SARS-CoV-1. Mm -hmm. And the, the work uh, that our uh, Duke colleagues like Lin Fa Wong have done to describe the, uh, the populations of viruses and bats in particular uh, has been really exciting to see over the last few years. And we've focused on bats because 
they're very their immune systems are tolerant to such a degree that they can they ha- they maintain a large number of viruses mm. indivi- as individuals and they live in these giant colonies right right and so they have the they're spreading those uh, v- viruses amongst the entire population and then they Every day and night, they have a diaspora that they go out to and they feed and then they bring new things back. And because of how we raise our animals and how we're interacting with those animals and, and how we're changing the environment for the bats and stressing those bats, they've got higher amounts of virus in them. And that's how COVID is presumed to have gotten into an intermediate animal and ultimately into, a, into humans, whether that happened in a, uh, in a market in Wuhan, as mm-hmm. was initially believed, or whether or not it was brought into a lab and worked on, um, which is not believed to have been at least a purposeful um, cause of the, the outbreak. But um, uh, you know, there's a lot of bats being brought in and studying different viruses, but there's no evidence that, that it happened actually in, in, a lab. in a laboratory at this point. And, and of course, uh, Lin Fa Wong is at Duke NUS in Singapore, when Southeast Asia seemed to be a locus of this place where you have a lot of these different kinds of diverse bat populations that live there and a lot of close contact between bats and livestock and also high population densities. That's exactly right. And Lin Fa had brought a, a really unique background to it. He's an immunologist, and mm. that's what led him to his interest in, uh, in bats. Uh, and they have a unique way of handling uh, potential cancers as well as how they handle the population of bats. So it's that unique immune system that's, um, that kind of creates a perfect crucible for uh, the ultimate emergence of new viruses. Interesting. Fascinating. All right. So we, we got kind of deep pretty quickly there. Um, but Chris, I want to make sure we're all on the same page with terminology. So COVID-19, for example, is a virus. If I understand correctly, something like Giardia, which I'm unfortunately a bit too familiar with from travels in different parts of the world when I was younger, um, is caused by a parasite. Um, what are the different ways that infectious diseases are transmitted through what kind of vehicles and parasites, viruses, bacteria, et cetera? Yeah. Um, one of the leading mechanisms, of course, is from human to human, and that's really important for how pandemic situations occur. You have to have that situation, not just that a, a whatever the pathogen is, be it a bacteria, a virus, a parasite, it has to make the, the move from whatever its environment is into the human. And so those can be waterborne or those can be through what we call vectors. And typically when we talk about vectorborne, we're talking about mosquitoes and ticks mm-hmm. and lice. And there's innumerable examples of those. Mm-hmm. There is airborne that is both we breathe, and we've talked a lot about aerosols with mm-hmm. COVID over the years, but there's also events that we may not think about, like earthquakes that shake things up and move clouds of, of uh, different types of fungi, mm-hmm. another potential mm-hmm. cause. Uh, there's a, something called valley fever, coccidioidomycosis, which is moved in plumes of... Um, of, uh, after storms or in the wake of earthquakes. Interesting. I also heard about an anthrax outbreak from permafrost melting somewhere in, I think it was in Russia. Five or uh, anthrax. Years ago. We could talk, uh, uh, there's all kinds of great examples from anthrax. Most interestingly, being uh, plumes of uh, airborne bacteria that happened uh, when someone forgot to put a filter back on a uh, bio. Ter- uh, uh, bio 
a weapon plant in uh, Sverdlovsk, um, Russia, back in the, uh, I guess it was the mid-'80s when that happened. Wow, that's terrifying. <laughs> Chris, I wanted to ask you, um, a couple times you mentioned a link between infectious disease and cancers. I'm aware of things like HPV, which is human papillomavirus, that can cause certain um, cancers, but is there a strong link between um, infectious disease, emergent infectious diseases, and cancers? Well, we're learning uh, as an infectious diseases doctor, of course, my response to that will be yes. Um, but the, uh, the more we understand the causes of chronic inflammation, um, the drivers of uh, neoplasms or cancers, um, we understand that there are um, many um, viruses and other chronic uh, infections that uh, are relevant. You gave a great example with the human papillomavirus, um, helicobacter pylori, its association with uh, peptic ulcer disease and gastric mm -hmm. cancers is another example. The hepatitis viruses, uh, hepatitis B and C, are both strongly related to the uh, subsequent incidence of hepatomas or uh, liver cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, so then, and there are many other examples as well. So um, we have, a, there's a tenuous balance of uh, how we exist with uh, the viruses and bacteria that uh, occupy us uh, and occupy the environment that surrounds us. Um, and I would say that's part of uh, what is impacted by these larger global ecological changes that we're we were discussing, we, you know, we, we didn't get into um, microbiome shifts, et cetera, but that's happening inside us as well as outside of us. And Constant state of biologic warfare. That's exactly right. And so that can have unexpected impacts on our health uh, that, um, you know, we'll just have to stay vigilant and, and continue to monitor. Bill, can you tell us more about how the health of animals in our natural environment affect the health of humans? Can you give us an example from your own work? Yeah, so the, thanks for the question. So I would say that um, the way human health kind of evolves over time, a lot of times, like Chris was saying, um, mimics what's happening in an animal environment. So if in bat populations, for example, if bats are... Uh, accumulating uh, a higher number of viruses, there's a greater chance, for example, from a virus to spill over into humans. And there's a lot of mechanisms in there. But what I would say is that in, in general, if you have a domestic animal like a dog or a cat, or if you are a farmer raising cattle or pigs, um, or even if you are just a person that doesn't have animals, but you experience the environment, because everybody experiences the environment, more than likely you come across an animal. A bird, a dog, you know, something uh, in your own backyard. And the health of that animal um, is really uh, related to what you are exposed to as well. So a classic example in, in One Health, you know, a class that uh, Chris and I teach, is this idea of animals as sentinels. So mm -hmm. animals, for example, uh, especially domestic animals, can be exposed to things like lead or Lyme disease or other things that um, the humans that are actually owning these animals are also exposed to, but we might not identify mm -hmm. that exposure or infection, but we might identify it in the animal. And so a, a lot of times there's this relationship between um, how the animal health, um, uh, you know, how that animal's health 
status is is uh, kind of evolving and being identified, um, and and how our own human health is is related to it. And now, for an example of my own work, what I would say is that uh, we see this a lot um, in, in the Peruvian coast in a place called Tumbes. Uh, I've been working with a group called the Sister Sarcosis Working Group. It's uh, Hugo Garcia, Seth O'Neill, Emiko Gonzalez, and they're really the leaders, the global leaders on cystic sarcosis, which is a pork tapeworm disease. And what happens is uh, you have free-roaming pigs mm -hmm. that are, are kind of grown by these small farmers. And what happens is these pigs tend to, um, they're what is it called, coprophagic, that's the word, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where they, they, they actually consume human feces because that's a, a, a way to um, uh, basically increase their iron intakes. And when humans have these tapeworms and they're defecating in a place where there's no open, like sanitation and there's not a, uh, a toilets and running water and things like that, the development is relatively low. There's a lot of open defecation. So the pigs will eat the feces, the, uh, the tapeworm will grow inside the pig. And eventually when that pig is slaughtered, uh, people will consume the, the tapeworm and mm -hmm. then get infected themselves. And so that's, that's kind of this classic example of this relationship between human and animal health. And what Chris was telling me earlier today is actually these problems are becoming more apparent in the United States, which I actually wasn't aware of because I mostly study these problems in, in low- and middle-income countries. But um, it's, uh, it was news to me that this is something that uh, clinicians are now aware of in the United States and kind of being uh, more cognizant about some of the, uh, the seizures that people have and, and checking for these tapeworms. Mm. Bill, can you expand or Chris expand on this a little bit? So, you know, we don't tend not to have open defecation in the United States, nor do we have pigs roaming the, the open um, fields and that sort of thing. So how do these diseases like this? Cystocercosis. Yeah. Thank you. Cystocercosis. Um, make it to the United States. So I would say that in the United States, what happens is you get a lot of migrants coming up from Central and South America or from different parts of Africa like Zambia or uh, places basically where cystocercosis is endemic. And a tapeworm can live inside you and, and not cause harm. It can cause a little bit of diarrhea. But for some hosts, for some human hosts, as long as it doesn't implant in the brain, um, it can still live in your gut, right? It has, uh, there's a specific, you know, mechanism how they, they reproduce and the, the reproduction can come into your brain. But that's where people will have seizures. But there's, a, there's actually a really interesting case study, and I can't remember when this came out. It might be the 80s, where there was a um, Orthodox Jewish population in New York City that had an outbreak of sister sarcosis, and they don't eat pork, right? right? And the whole question was, where was this coming from? Hmm. I mean, there was a whole line of trying to figure out why people were having seizures and what was happening to them and finally discovering sister sarcosis. But it turned out that the, the way they, it was entered into this population was that when uh, the Jewish population was having uh, banquets, the cooks that were cooking for them were from an endemic region of sister sarcosis. Interesting. And since the hygiene wasn't so good, they weren't washing their hands properly, uh, essentially they infected the food that they were eating. Wow. And, and that's... That's how it introduced, at least that's how it would introduce into a population. But we also get a lot of migrants that are coming from 
uh, endemic regions into the United States that can uh, have later uh, diagnoses of sister sarcosis. Chagas is the same way. That's another one that um, we have a lot of uh, migrants coming to the United States having Chagas disease, which is a it's a it's a disease caused by a it's a called a kissing bug that bites you when you sleep and it defecates on your skin mm-hmm. and when you scratch that's when you infect yourself and Chagas has an acute stage and a chronic stage and a lot of times people just have the chronic stage for years and it becomes a cardiac uh, manifestation later in life and Chris probably knows more about the actual clinical pieces of it than I do. Well, I'm curious though as our region here in, in Durham starts continues to grow, and we have a lot of migrants coming in, both um, here at Duke University, but also in the agricultural industry, and as people coming up from Central and South America. Chris, in your work, have you seen any of these diseases may have migrated up from places in Central and South yeah. America here in Durham? That was uh, again what Bill was referring to on part of our conversation on the walk over today um, was related to cystocercosis and where we've seen it in the, some of the populations here in uh, here in Durham and in North Carolina, and I don't want that to. Um, I'm actually taking a, a little bit of a uh, of Bill's position to talk about what is you know moving what moves those populations right and uh, I think historically it's been for economic opportunity. What we're going to be seeing potentially, and we're starting to get the tip of that, is the migration that's being moved by or encouraged by climate change. And this is the climate pulse. So I'd be remiss if I didn't at least highlight the fact that. Anthropogenic land use change, global warming, uh, changes in storm frequency, where there's livability in in the and throughout the world is particularly hitting our vulnerable populations, and so we we have an understanding of why there's uh, the movement of these populations taking place. But what Bill was describing with cystocercosis and Chagas actually was more typical of the. Uh, uh, of the agricultural populations we've seen coming up from Mexico and Central America for now many decades and even beyond, but where folks may have been exposed uh, in their youth and then they've moved and uh, over time because there's a chronicity to these particular infections, uh, their manifestations are, are more late stage. And that makes diagnosis all the more difficult. So clinically, it's you have to be aware uh, of those late presentations and be thinking about it in certain populations and increasingly because of the just the number of folks that are coming and we have to be more aware of um, the uh, the distribution of disease and the change in the epidemiology that we're we're, we're actually seeing now um, and you know the, the great I opened up this conversation with emerging infections as a whole and one of the great drivers uh, is certainly globalization and so it's not just migration of people, but it's movement of people and products that's been happening again for, for many years that um, as the world has opened up. Uh, but the and, scale is really and increased. And the scale is just uh, dramatically increased. So those nodes of opportunity of intersection have just uh, really exploded. And, and that's um, it just increases the likelihood of those spillover events and the fact that you'll get new, uh, new pathogens or previously in, uh, in exp- populate or pathogens in populations who haven't previously experienced those types of infections, and so you either haven't seen them before, or you just 
um, they uh, you don't have an immunity at the at the uh, population level to control them. Yeah, I, can I just jump in for a second? So I, I thank you, Chris, for actually bringing it back to the climate pulse, right? That <laughs> <laughs> in the sound there, uh, but I you know I I definitely don't want to say that sister sarcosis and Chagas is going to be an outbreak in the United States. Okay. Like that's not really realistic to think about. What's more realistic to think about is the fact that migrants are being pushed out of where they live and coming to places where they can survive. And, you know, right now we have a migrant crisis on the border. And we have a study in Panama, right in the Darien Gap, where, unfortunately, there are 50,000 people per month coming across the Darien Gap. Right. And this is what we have an active study on. Um, and it all started around 2020, 2021, right when the the border reopened after COVID. And it's partially related to political unrest in Venezuela and Ecuador, but it's also partially related to the fact that the Amazon itself is converting to an arid savanna Mm -hmm. and people can't survive. And so they need to move to places that they can survive. So so I wanted to ask you about this actually, Bill, because you've worked in South America for years now. And I'm wondering, you talk about conversion of the Amazon to arid savanna. Is that mostly because of anthropogenic climate change or anthropogenic land use and land cover change or a combination uh, that's a of both? Great question. So the Amazon is a very unique ecosystem where uh, about 40 to 50 percent of the water that the rainfall that occurs is actually trapped within the Amazon that cycles with the Andes. The other percentage is coming across from general atmospheric currents, mm-hmm. right? What has happened in the Amazon is you have something called the arc of deforestation, Mm -hmm. which starts in Brazil and kind of moves in a southeasterly direction toward Bolivia and Peru, southern uh, southern Peru and Bolivia. And in that arc of deforestation, um, the reasons why things are being deforested are agricultural expansion, cattle ranching, mining, logging, you know, everything that we like to consume in the West. Uh, but it's it's causing a land use change where if climate change wasn't occurring, you would have you would still have changes in um, the arid conditions in those places because it it's it's disrupting the hydrometeorological flow of water between the Andes and the land. I mean, you're a climate scientist, you know you know this as well. But the problem is with climate change overall, since the temperature in the Amazon overall has increased about one degree Mm -hmm. in the past 20 years, that has basically made the situation worse, where the arid conditions that would have normally stabilized is continually, uh, the the forest uh, health is continually deteriorating. That's causing changes in what diseases you occur, it's causing changes in how people make livelihood, which drives migration. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are happening now that are happening very, very fast that we just don't have a we don't have our finger on yet. Right. So I'm, I'm seeing this strong link between land use and climate change, political unrest, economic instability, and migration, and how that can actually um, increase the distribution of different infectious diseases throughout the Americas, for example. Are you seeing anything locally where these changes and loss of biodiversity, um, changes in land use, um, changes in climate, things heating up, maybe not as much rainfall, are actually impacting the emergence of new infectious diseases or the spread of infectious disease throughout within South America? 
Sorry, you said locally, but do you mean in the United States or? I mean or? In, in South America. So in, in Peru, Bolivia, the places you work. So what we see, for example, when I first started working in Peru, I was working in a place called Loreto. Um, and then when I moved to Duke, I moved to a place called Madre de Dios. I still work in Loreto, but Madre de Dios is in a southern place where there's a lot of mining. Mm. And there was malaria there. And there was probably like 100 to 300 cases annually. Not so bad, but Madre de Dios only has about 100,000 people living there. So as a rate, it was actually pretty high. Um, what happened between 2008 and 2011 is there were a lot of interventions to try to reduce dengue mm -hmm. because they were really worried about dengue emerging in the one city. That and is dengue is another vector-borne. Sorry, yes. Dengue is an arbovirus spread by a mosquito called the Aedes, an Aedes aegypti, whereas malaria is spread by a mosquito called Anopheles darlingi in, in Peru. But what happened was um, they had these interventions to try to stop dengue, which ended up reducing malaria rates a lot because they had a lot of vector control. Uh, and, and now you almost have no malaria in Madre de Dios. Okay. But what happened was because of the way the uh, savannization was occurring and places were becoming so dried out, 80s began occupying the space that Anopheles used to be in. Mm -hmm. So the mining areas, which usually 80s likes urban areas. So this was a semi-rural area that had disruptive land but had a nice habitat for 80s. And now dengue is uh, kind of emerged as the major problem in this region. And all the interventions that they've had to try to control it, they're not working. Hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a mystery about exactly what's going to happen over the next couple of years, especially as you look from Peru into Bolivia and then to Brazil, and you see this continued savannization occurring. Um, like what's going to happen with malaria? What's going to happen with dengue? And is this switch going to occur? Um, and then how do you prepare the health system for this new problem? I would just emphasize that, you know, what Bill's describing in the ecological niches of Peru and, and South America are happening globally. You know, there are most of these diseases, particularly vector-borne diseases, have unique ecologies. I was kind of, my introduction into the whole area was in the mid to late 90s was studying a disease called Rift Valley Fever, which has a very unique ecology in the Horn of Africa and was tied to, its outbreaks were tied to the El Nino Southern Oscillation mm. periodicity that uh, most climate scientists are uh, well aware of, but happens in at certain uh, seven to 10 year intervals where you get high levels of rainfall, which hydrates old eggs from the last uh, Enzo event or El Nino event. And then you get these blooms of these um, infected mosquitoes who, uh, who then uh, infect the, the local wildlife and then they infect the local uh, domestic animals, and then eventually it ends up in the, in the human populations. But as you change um, the, that, in, that ecology globally, you suddenly are having outbreaks of Rift Valley fever uh, in, uh, in the Middle East or, you know, famously in Madagascar where there's just great land use change and, and, and disruption taking place. So what, this is a global phenomenon. We've got you know, similar changes here in, in the United States as well. So, and each of these is you know, disease and pathogen specific. And when you think about the great number of 
of uh, in potential infections out there. The as we uh, disrupt the world uh, around us and we continue to stress it, um, those uh, those opportunities for the emergence just happen more and more frequently. Bill. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about avian flu? I understand these different bird flus emerge, in, especially in Southeast Asia, I believe. But can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it might be related to climate change? So it touches on a lot of different uh, aspects of, I would say, human society. So bird production, poultry production, for example, we all know that we pay more for eggs. Um, and the price of eggs is increasing primarily because we have lost over 100 million birds in the last couple of years to avian flu. Wow. Um, about 50 million in the United States and about another 50 million in Europe. Uh, when I was in Africa like two weeks ago, they were also reporting cases of avian flu. Mm -hmm. Of course, those aren't reported on a database. Um, I didn't see it in ProMed at least. <laughs> uh, but, you know, th it's a major problem. The thing that we're seeing actually more of is, is not just poultry production that, that avian flu is, is impacting. It's wild bird populations and some mammal populations like sea lions, mm. um, penguins. Um, and part of that spread to the wild population is not just driven by the fact that some birds fly into poultry farms, but it also has to do with climate change and the way bird migration works and where birds are flying. And so, you know, there is, as you have loss of biodiversity and loss of forest, you reduce places where these wild bird populations can live. And so they become closer and closer to where humans are, and they become closer and closer where we have farms. And that's how the birds are, the wild bird populations are probably getting infected from avian flu. And so, um, you know, this is, this is a major global problem that's continuing I don't believe, and Chris, you might correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe we have a solution to that yet. It's, it's a still an ongoing problem. Yeah, I would just mention that uh, you, you highlight a really important element of avian flu in that you end up decimating uh, both uh, food flocks as well as wild flocks of, of birds. But it's also that it's the crucible uh, between birds and uh, swine populations where novel viruses that will likely be where the new, yeah. the next influenza pandemic emerges from, that uh, happens, and it's happening for the same reasons you're you're alluding to. We we mix the the um, uh, the populations of those animals in our animal husbandry. Uh, it's not it's fairly frequent to have. Uh, domestic bird flocks stored over uh, swine herds mm -hmm. and then people working uh, in those, particularly in South and Southeast Asia, uh, which is where many of the new uh, viruses, have, influenza viruses have emerged. Which is terrifying when you mention 100 million birds that have been lost in Europe and North America. That doesn't include Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. Wow. So this would be an example of a potential spillover event? That's exactly right. So influenza is a, is a great example of, uh, of a zoonotic infection that most people don't think about being a zoonotic infection. So I feel that a lot of listeners, including myself, become aware of infectious diseases in our own communities and hear about those around the world through the news and media. Can you share with us about how you all, the experts, stay aware and at the forefront of infectious diseases around the world? We'll start with you, Bill. 
ProMed. I don't know if you've ever heard of ProMed Mail. This is probably the best resource for what diseases exist in the local area. Um, there's a website called healthmap.org that kind of uh, organizes the ProMed data. So you can actually click on a map and you can zoom in on a place where you are going to or that you're interested in. And they have a very, uh, very good database on what's happened in the last four weeks, last month. You can look over, over time, over the last couple of years, and all of that data is compiled. Uh, it's, I think it's the number one place that you can get information from. That sounds like a great resource. I've never heard of it, so I'll have to check it out. Where is the data coming from and who's, I guess, curating the data? That's a great question. Um, so in our One Health class, we talk about ProMed quite a bit. And the, the data come from reported government documents, from um, sometimes news media, sometimes reports from veterinarians or farmers mm -hmm. or um, what do you call a, a registered agents uh, which, who, who help farmers on, on different things about animal health. Uh, sometimes it's just the, you know, local clinics that are reporting things, uh, but it's it's coming from general public, right? And it's the the reports are sent into ProMed, and they have a team that kind of filters through that information to report it appropriately. And there, and Chris, I don't know if you want to jump in at all. I, I'll just add that uh, I like to think I may have introduced you to ProMed. You did. Something, you did. Yeah. I, that's why I wanted to, see you to come in because I, <laughs> so, I thank you for it. Yeah, I was introduced <laughs> to it when I was at uh, CDC in the late 1990s, and it is a wonderful resource, and it's everything that Bill was alluding to. The important part that I just wanted to emphasize was the the editing component, and this is what we don't really have in our modern social media life. Is mm -hmm. reports are just flooding out, and and they are not curated very well. And right. that's one thing that the ProMed offices have brought to it for many many years, and they've been committed to that. Larry Madoff and others have been just been really. Uh, uh, committed. Uh, and their financial model is probably being stressed. And I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to continue doing what they have. But it has been a wonderful resource. The, the trick is going to be how do we uh, cultivate um, those reports now that are really happening through our, you know, whether it's in what we call X or Twitter or coming through mm -hmm. uh, our other social media uh, mechanisms. And, you know, pe individuals are, are, have taken a responsibility through blogs and, and, and so forth. And that really exploded during COVID, of course. We got all, got, you know, had our favorite blog or, or group that we were listening to. But, um, but I still uh, think there's a place for the curated information that ProMed, you know, would bring to bear for us. Mm -hmm. I think what the other thing that Chris is alluding to is the financial model because ProMed is under risk at closing down. And so that would be a huge loss for the infectious disease community mm -hmm. globally if it does shut down in any, in any way. Well, hopefully we can get some listeners to go on and, you know, champion on the data set. Um, this is a question for um, you, Chris. Many of my classmates and I are interested in understanding the connection between climate change and health. But it's somewhat daunting and also hard to figure out how to apply this knowledge 
uh, in the clinical setting, so like actually in the clinic and hospital locally. So how do you how do you use some of the information that we just discussed and your global health work in a local context? Well, as an infectious disease physician, and I also work in in, in uh, diagnostic laboratories, so thinking about what is causing the diseases we see, it's it's a fairly uh, it's become part of how I think about you know any patient who's presenting. What is the as infectious disease doctors, we're taught, you know, what is the epidemiology of the individual, not just the, the signs and the symptoms that mm-hmm. the person's presenting with, but where are they from? What have they been exposed to? Were they, were they incarcerated for a long period of time? Do they happen to be pig farmers? All those questions will ask, you know, when was the last time you got bit by a, uh, a, um, a tick? Um, did you know you have a tick stuck to you on the on your back? You know these are types of things you you see all the time. So it it becomes it's built into your infectious disease training. But we do try to make sure um, in our general medical education and clinical education for all allied health you know nurses and PAs etc. That they understand. We're increasingly uh, trying to make sure folks are aware of how. Um, those interactions are changing. It changes the epidemiology of, of disease, uh, the potential for emergence of disease. Mm-hmm. Um, just being aware, you know, um, Bill gave the example of cystocercosis earlier, and in, in, uh, in certain populations, it's the leading cause of seizure. And so you may not think about that in, uh, you know, as in the United States mm-hmm. uh, routinely. Uh, historically, but that has changed over time, particularly as demographics have changed. So those types of things to be aware of. And um, I have, I've been gratified during the time of COVID that we, most folks either believe they're armchair uh, epidemiologists or, or they're truly becoming uh, proficient epidemiologists. And at least everyone knows what the word epidemiology means now, I think, which is um, what we want to inculcate in our uh, young medical uh, trainees as well. Right. So it sounds like these are questions that all medical professionals should be asking, not just the ID docs. Absolutely. Bill, the COVID-19 pandemic served as a wake-up call for us all to pay attention to how humans, ecosystems, and animals can interact in ways that impact the entire planet. Can you give us an example of a win in the field of One Health and or infectious disease research that has reduced some of the impacts of climate change? So what I would say is I'm not sure I can say what a win is, right? But what I would tell you is that there is, there's been a lot of scientific research to try to understand, for example, how designating land in a protected state where you, and this was work I think that was done by some Duke researchers maybe 10 years ago in Brazil, where they looked at different, uh, different forest reserves in Brazil that were protected in the sense that you couldn't enter it, or they were protected in the sense that um, people could enter back and forth, like rubber tappers and things like that. And then there were forests that were non-protected that were adjacent to mm-hmm. towns or, or communities or other kind of cities. And what they basically find is that when you look at incidence rates of malaria, diarrhea, um, respiratory illness in kids, whenever you have a population that is living near a protected forest that is not allowed to be, you know, occupied by people, you had lower rates of disease. Mm -hmm. Now, why does this happen? 
Um, you know, this was a, a study that showed this relationship. It doesn't go into why it's happening, but the hypothesis is basically that if you can preserve uh, a, a state of the forest in a, in, a, in a high biodiverse state, that you don't have a lot of human environment interaction occurring with it, you can actually protect your populations that are living near it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have a, have a forest that has, say, similar or slightly below biodiversity compared to the fully protected one, but you allow people to enter it, you're going to have this interface of humans in the environment where you have an increased risk for different diseases to be passed back into humans. So I would say that the win is that we have the evidence mm -hmm. that if you protect certain environmental zones, you can have a very positive impact on human health. Um, the current project that I'm working on in, in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire is, is basic, basically this idea where they're reforesting areas that are degraded and they are putting shade trees in cacao and coffee tree plantations to protect from climate change. And the idea is that by replanting specific species of trees, you can um, have biodiversity return or come close to how it was before. Um, and as long as you're keeping the protected zones um, protected from human encroachment, then you can actually result in, in overall improved health. And we're working on a project in southeastern Madagascar, which is very similar. We're looking at an area of high conservation value rainforest with the non-governmental organization Health and Harmony. And the idea is we can protect the concept, if we can conserve that small section of rainforest and the biodiversity that exists in there, we can, as you say, reduce disease and, and support the overall health of the population. However, the challenge comes in that a lot of these poor communities around here that are marginalized rely on the resources provided by the forest itself, be it either wood resources or food in the, in the jungle that people look, specifically lemurs in this case. So there's also interventions that can be done that support the local communities and their economies in ways that they don't need to go in to get the resources from there. Because marine, these protected areas can be a little bit controversial because indigenous populations have always relied on these resources now have to not go in there anymore. So you have to support these communities. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the interventions cannot be just one focused problem. One dimensional. It has to be a systems approach where you address the human need as well as the environmental need. Very good. So Chris. How about on the health side? I mean, just earlier this week, um, professors Caitlin Carrico and Drew Weissman from the University of Pennsylvania won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for their work on the mRNA COVID vaccine. Are there other big wins in this ever-changing battle against infectious diseases? Yeah, I mean, when we have these tremendous uh, emerging infectious events, you know, whether it be uh, our response to HIV and all the, our understanding of uh, immu human immunology that has emerged from that. Uh, most of the mRNA work, or much of it, was focused on responding to cancer, but it was that technology was poised at the outbreak of COVID to be uh, transitioned to um, uh, infectious disease vaccines, and that work had preceded uh, it as part of a large countermeasure um, uh, development systems, and those would include vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics. So we had tremendous revolution in all those areas in just the, the pan peri-pandemic period, and that work is ongoing. We do need to continue to invest in those um, approaches if we're going to be able to respond with uh, speed and uh, reduce the impacts of our 
uh, of the next pandemic, which a lot of people are talking about what's going to be next. But of course, the real way to, to have great impact here is to prevent those events in the first place. And I think both you and Bill have highlighted uh, some of those uh, things that we need to do to make sure that we limit opportunities for spillover events. We kind of uh, reduce the impacts of, of um, uh, environmental migration that may occur that can uh, make uh, that can limit the spread of diseases um, that we need to improve our uh, global medical and public health infrastructure that's where we really need to be investing so that we are understanding that you know what when new diseases do emerge we can control them locally and to do that we need to have strong uh, diagnostic infrastructure and surveillance systems in place and we'll be able to assure that people have better access to care for more routine uh, global health or routine health issues uh, and achieve some greater uh, health equity in the, in the process. So um, we've got these great tools downstream, but we really need to be working upstream and think about building those, uh, that infrastructure to help us be resilient. So uh, I understand if we have increased um, investment in hospital and healthcare infrastructure, both here in the United States, but also abroad, especially in these places where a lot of these infectious diseases are emerging from will be better at preventing the next pandemic down the road. That's the that's the uh, my expectation. Okay, okay. So I'm feeling a lot better now and writing a note to myself to get the most recent flu and COVID-19 vaccines as soon as possible. It's really encouraging to know that we have such really smart people working in a supportive and collaborative environment here at Duke to address these problems that have been quite literally existential in the not too distant past. Keep up the excellent work, gentlemen. I appreciate your time and your. Uh, efforts and work you're doing. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Thanks, Trish. Join us next time on Climate Pulse, where we'll be talking with Joel Meyer and Robert Tai about the toxicity of certain substances and how it's affected by climate change. Mm-hmm.